my name is Tom Baxter. My wife's name is Jamie. She uh, directs the Xavier Counseling Center. And so that's been an interesting part of our church planning journey because she's got a full a leadership role. Got three kids, Ellie, Luke, and Ava. Our oldest is 18, senior in high school, going to go to SEU in Florida. Uh, so we're excited for her, but my heart's hurting a little bit, everybody. That's kind of a big transition. We're a close family. Um, our son Luke is 15. He just got himself a job yesterday at a uh, golf co course. He's going to be taking care of the golf carts. Doesn't that sound like a pretty good deal? And because nobody wants to work during COVID, they're going to pay him $10 an hour, right, to drive golf carts around when he's 15 years old. That seems like a pretty good uh, deal. And then our youngest. Yeah, anybody else need a job? <laughs> and then our youngest, uh, Ava, is a sixth grader and uh She's just a joy to be around. So that's our family makeup. Our, so we planted a church uh, four years ago. And in fact, almost exactly four years ago, it was March 18th. And we planted in one of Cincinnati's uh, 52 city proper neighborhoods. Uh, somewhat unique dynamics. So uh, we live in the suburbs, but like the neighbor behind me that our backyard share they're technically in the, the target neighborhood we planted in. So that's how close it is. And so it's really our neighborhood. It's our community. That's where we shop. That's where we connect with people. My kids have a really bizarre experience. I'll give you a snapshot. They go to almost 100% uh, uh, Caucasian school. And then part of our youth ministry, like so imagine that's their experience on Friday. Saturday, they're hanging out at youth group. I, I'm driving out of the neighborhood, and I see them walking down the streets of Mount Washington, and it just so happened to be that day they, they were the only white kids, okay, going to get ice cream. So that kind of paints a little bit of the picture and dynamics. In our city proper neighborhood, uh, it's predominantly white, but there's uh, a lot of Section 8 housing, and so it's created this really challenging imbalance um, and there's kind of a whole story with the journey we've been um, on as uh, church planners to bring people together. So a uh, real quick, bigger picture. Um, 1988, we moved from Toledo to Cincinnati and started attending First Christian Assembly of God, which is today People's Church. So in 2004, the church declared a vision to be a racially reconciling church, and that started kind of this, what does that mean? Are you kidding me? Is that biblical? It's kind of this whole experience. But as we crossed the black-white divide in America, 33 nations came as a result. And so we call it Church Like Heaven. And it, it was almost an all-white commuter church driving into a very diverse neighborhood. Uh, there were people driving from counties in Indiana, way down in Kentucky. I mean, just a real life-giving church. But we weren't reaching the neighbors who lived in our community. And so um, God, God kind of did something really divine there. Um, right now, not only do I serve as a church planner, but I'm one of the elders of People's Church Network. 
So people's church is without an apostrophe, and it's how the Bible uses it, nations of the earth. So the scripture that most people recognize is clap your hands, all you peoples. You know that, so it's ethne or nations. It's the Lord's church, right? <laughs> it's not the people's. And so um, we are not planting campuses. We're planting autonomous churches that share a name, mission, and vision. So uh, Los Angeles is launching April 2nd and 3rd. Cape Town, South Africa is coming soon. That'll make seven people's churches. Um, there's four in Cincinnati. But now there's more international churches. Honduras just planted. Um, we're bringing in a couple from the Middle East who have been church planting, and they want to really learn the DNA of the kingdom. Um, and then uh, Split Croatia, we've been in partnership with a sister church there for a long time. So our plan is to plant 30 churches by 2030 in racially fractured cities all around the world. That's kind of the, the effort and the goal. So I lead a cohort of church planners, and uh, there's different ministry models that could be a micro church or kind of a house church expression or a traditional church. So that's just a little bit of uh, the details. So this picture is really fascinating. This is out of a New York Times uh, article, and the headline was um, an all-black neighborhood and the only people buying houses are white people. And so this is a snapshot of what we're seeing um, all across the U.S. and around the world, gentrification. We've got uh, urban areas that are depressed and uh, developers are coming in, they're buying land, they're building homes, it's displacing people and it's causing a lot of chaos. I'll speak to our own city, um, you know, the idea of, um, housing that people can afford is just like a mythical dragon that everyone's trying to chase, right? Because because we're all about making money, right? And the other thing I'm convinced is that the building permits needed in this, the whole city process, that just costs so much money that it's hard to do it in an economically approachable way. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll say this aside because we need some realism here, right? Uh, let me tell you why there's ghettos. White people told black people that they could only live in certain areas. And we've got historically documented uh, banks, lenders, real estate agents. The, the practice was called redlining. And you could not live in a white community. And so people of color were concentrated in urban areas. And then when that finally was lifted, when we began to chip away at that, the stable person on the corner, the doctor, the lawyer, the grandma, people with means who had succeeded against great odds, moved out of the neighborhoods. And we lost the stability, uh, businesses, and then so people who are living below the poverty line were left, right, without the strength of the rest of their community. That's why there's ghettos. Then it's an unattractive place to live, right? 
and there's all sorts of challenges, and people stare wide-eyed every night at 11 o'clock and watch the news, and oh, there's all these really bad, scary people down there, you know, I don't want to go there and live there, you know, it kind of reinforces stereotypes. And then one day, developers come in when land gets cheap, cheap enough, and they start buying it up, right? And they start <coughs> making homes like this. I've seen these homes many times. And then, and then they'll say something like, hey, uh, we need a plan for this neighborhood. Isn't anyone doing anything in this neighborhood? Let me start here. Uh, I'm, I'm never going to go in a neighborhood and say we need to rethink ministry. There, there are men and women of color who've been in the trenches bearing people in their congregation who've been shot by gun violence, dealing with all the challenges. Um, if we're going to do urban ministry, if we're going to come into a neighborhood, it's so important that we do it in an authentic way. We come willing to partner. We come willing to serve. We come willing to ask questions. And, and find out what's happening in a neighborhood. All right, so now let me kind of jump into the con uh, content with that uh, framework. All right, so just a new approach to doing uh, ministry in the urban centers, uh, diversely united teams. So this is just, it's, it's a biblical vision. It's God's vision. Um, you know, we can make the case that our cities are growing more diverse all the time, right? And in a practical way, we say, hey, that just makes sense. We need to figure this out, right? But the truth is, this is what Jesus paid for, right? Jesus purchased with his blood uh, people from every tongue, nation, and tribe. And the Bible invites us to, to this one new humanity, as is described in, in Ephesians, and it literally shares between the Jews and Gentiles that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Let that sink in for a minute. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Jesus didn't break down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles so that the Gentiles could continue to be divided. And so if he has power, right, to break that curse, then he has power to break that in all of humanity, right? We can lay down our pride. And so we, we get this beautiful vision in Galatians. It talks about, you know, we're all part of the family of God when we're baptized into Christ Jesus. And then it says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So we get this picture painted of a diversely united church and if you kind of start understanding this from a biblical perspective and you start reading throughout scripture you find out that when you approach new testament books like the book of uh, corinthians he's writing to a multi-ethnic church and a lot of the challenges that the apostle paul is addressing is because there's people from different ethnic backgrounds right and there's hostility, there's challenge, it's not easy. So even when we approach communion, one group of people is taking communion before another group of people. 
And, and he even challenges one of the best messages I ever heard from uh, a precious pastor in Missouri who was in his 80s. But, you know, we, we approach this. Go read this after you leave this room. But we approach this communion passage with this idea that you need to examine yourself because you don't want to uh, take communion in an unworthy manner. And we think that has to do with our individual sin. And it actually has to do how we treat other people. So read the context of that passage. And so all throughout the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul is, is really sacrificing his life for a diversely united church. He, act, he said, I've become all things to all people. Remember that great line? That's the discipleship principle here. And so that's uh, uh, really how we need to approach ministry in the urban core as a diversely uh, united church. So united ethnically, you know, we want to worship, not just worship together, but serve together. Black, white, many nations. Um, you know, as I'm, as I'm sharing uh, these principles, guys, this is really deep stuff. Um, I mean, being in rooms where people are screaming at each other. People are bawling. Um, um, when you start talking about the divides that exist and the stronghold of the enemy where one man thinks he's better than another, uh, we, we don't just say, okay, let's be unified, and then we're unified. <laughs> uh, to me, biblical unity across divides is like taking two dissimilar metals and sticking them in a really hot fire and then bringing them out and then like a blacksmith, wham, wham, wham. Because unless you're willing to really connect with someone at a heart level and hear their story and journey with them for multiple years, um, there's a price to be paid here <laughs> to be a diversely united church. Um, but there's power when we recognize that we're uh, all children of God, right? And we all have a place. And when you can really do shared leadership in a genuine way, right? And, and just, you know, I'll speak for my own kids. If it wasn't for people's church, they'd almost grow up in a totally white world. And so they would never learn to sit under men and women of color. So they would never have the voice never learn to respect and have the authority of someone of color over their lives and this is so so even even this concept that we would rethink urban ministry and do it in a diversely united way i can bring robin venus dothard who planted people's church city west and the west side of cincinnati and they're going to tell the, the honest story that they're going to say pastor tom we want to do this but it's hard as black leaders to have white people following. I mean, this is just really, you know, um, and so we're wrestling with these things right together uh, as a group. Socioeconomically, uh, so man, can't tell you, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So uh, People's Church East uh, started out uh, with a d diversely united team, we started reaching our neighbors. 
uh, we started seeing uh, people who lived in apartment uh, complexes come to Jesus, right, come and be a part of our church. From the beginning, and especially when we moved a little bit further in our journey, I had full confidence when we went into an apartment complex with bread, milk, and eggs and knocked on a door and invited people, you know, how can we pray with you? We want to get to know you. Come to our church. That was not a missions project. We weren't coming in and doing that and then leaving the neighborhood. We lived in the neighborhood. Not, not only did we live in the neighborhood, but Tashara, who lives in the first apartment when you pull into Woodwind, gave her life to Jesus. And Tashara has a bag of bread, milk, and eggs, and she's knocking on her neighbor's door and handing it out. Oh, and then Miss Paula, six doors down, comes to faith in Jesus as a part of our church. She's knocking on her neighbor. And it just keep, kept building. And so when you're, you're, there's socioeconomic diversity, right, people who are currently living below the poverty line and people with means, when they come together, everyone can fit into the body of Christ. And there's there's benefits on both sides of this. So so Miss Paula, as an example, she's raising her grandkids, right? She's trying to find jobs at like Wendy's or where, wherever. Well, she gets an opportunity. There's social capital that exists within inside the body of Christ. She gets an opportunity to work for a Kenyan woman who has her own job, um, caring for the elderly. So Miss Paula goes and gets whatever medical certification she needs. It's like a one-year program. We celebrate her graduation. And then she gets a job, right, with Olivia Cola and her business. And that's, that was kind of a little snapshot of the beginning of possibilities in a diversely united church, uh, in, a, in a church where there's, not, uh, where there's people coming together from different walks of life. And then just really big on the male-female thing, uh, let's not glance over this, uh, women are called capable, fearless, powerful leaders, um, and uh, <coughs> it's so important that we continue to see more women credentialed and used and gifted. Um, just so you know, I'm really trying to hold myself back. I get really passionate about this stuff. I don't know if anyone saw me get passionate about this stuff, but, you know, this whole nonsense that, okay, women can teach and lead all the children, but they can't speak to an adult. Women are anchoring the church in America. Most of the people sitting in the pew are women doing all the work. Um, but it, you know, it's really hard for the church to be a prophetic voice when it comes to sexuality and gender when we don't get this right. I'm not just talking about the male and female. I'm talking about the socioeconomic diversity and the ethnic diversity. Because when we're sideways with all that, it just looks like we hate everybody. But when we can hit on all cylinders and really love people, then, then, <laughs> then there's a voice, right, uh, to speak into really important um, issues. So that's uh, so just starting and, and really wrestling. And I, I just want to say, um, 
and, and some of you really know this well, but doing ministry in the urban core doesn't come easy. There's no, n- no part of it that's easy, right? And so it is not easy to raise up a diversely united team. And the work is never finished. Uh, you know, snapshot of my living room, there's a diversely united group of leaders. Uh, we just met this past Sunday, right? We had a really good conversation. Um, there's always challenge and pain points. You know, the dialogue, I'll give you an example, the dialogue on Sunday with our leaders, uh, one of our leaders said, hey, um, one of our leaders of color, can we help our foster parents, the white foster parents who have children of uh, color, foster kids of color with their hair? Because uh, when I see their hair, and then it, and then there's it, and then we have people who've been walking in the trenches doing foster care and adoption ministry, and it's like, oh, but wait a second, legally you can't because the foster, I mean the biological parent or relative has rights. And we got into this deep discussion of all the psychology. That may be the only thing that they feel like they can control, and even though they don't have time to do that. And so we had this really robust, rich, you know, dialogue, and those kind of that's just always ongoing right it's kind of a genuine thing we're familying together it's um, uh, really fun all right so let me give um, some specific principles here anytime uh, you go into an urban context it's so important that you get the blessing of others Uh, this is this is kind of doing ministry 101 please don't go to a uh, you know Ohio for Jesus there's new areas and territories we need to go to Who's, who's doing the work of the ministry there? Spend time with them. Introduce yourself and ask them for their blessing. <laughs> Don't just show up and start doing ministry. Um, and es- especially where there's uh, pastors who've been pastoring there for a long time. It'll go. Listen, if they don't give their blessing, it <laughs> uh, doesn't mean you can't be in that community. It just means you're going to have to pray harder and keep making connections. God's, God's going to bring you together. Uh, with questions, don't assume you know what everybody needs. Don't go into a community and be like, oh, we're the saviors. Here we come with our diversity united team. I mean, you got to really talk with residents, community leaders. Um, with questions is just a, a great way to approach that. Uh, people of peace. This is one of my uh, favorites. This is a missions principle. It's a biblical principle. It comes out when, when Jesus sends out the 72 to do ministry. And he says, go find men and women of peace. And the little illustration he gives is they're going to let you stay in your home and they're going to feed you and you're basically going to be able to base out of there and do ministry. Um, I experienced that firsthand in Nepal. Uh, a couple named Josh and Lindy. Uh, hike where there are no roads. I got to go over there and be with them. But if you can imagine this couple walks like 10 hours until it gets dark where there is no physical map. And they show up in this village of, and people have never seen a stranger before. And then because of the hospitality culture, a man or woman of peace invites them in and they might live there for two or three weeks. Like my brain's like blown, right? Uh, but 
so taking it down to this experience, there's men and women of peace that God will use, both residents and community leaders, where you can partner with, and they'll give you permission and blessing to do ministry in the community. Um, they don't need to be followers of Christ. That's what's wild about it. Um, when we started doing ministry in Mount Washington, we just saw some good early momentum, especially at apartment complexes. And so you can imagine we're at the point, one of the apartment complexes where the police are called most often, right? And there we are with people we know. We're playing football and then we're having to grill out and doing the whole thing and enjoying it. And this woman rides up on her bike and she takes her helmet off and she joins us. Well, she's a community council president, okay? And she's like, who are you people? What are you, what, what, <laughs> wait, you're from a church? No way. Well, she's an atheist, okay? She's very proud of that fact, right? Very clear about that. And so we started partnering together and because she's the community council president in a divided neighborhood, and because concerned white residents are calling the police because of scary black people, specifically TGZ, which is a business owned by a couple on our leadership team who was in my living room on Sunday, if you're following me, who white people always doing crazy stuff, right? So she sees us and she's like, gets really interested. So we start building this relationship. Well, then COVID happens, okay? And when COVID happens, we get kicked out of our local schools because of you know just health concerns. And so we had invested deeply in a neighborhood. We weren't gonna leave, right? We're not just there for the fun of it. You know, we're not gonna leave. And uh, it got really challenging because churches in our neighborhood, even though they were well-meaning, oh, you could, you could come here on Sunday nights for, for three weeks and then we need to charge you 500 bucks a night. Catholic church that had a two gymnasiums oh yeah, you, you can use that. You know, the father, Graham, was so kind. Yeah, you can use it. doesn't matter how long. It's free. Oh, wait a second. The boosters just found out about it, and they're the ones that pay the money, and they just freaked out, and you're out. So I was in this moment of desperation, like, Lord, you called us to do ministry here. What are we going to do? And there was a new, uh, at our park, our local park, there's this cool pavilion that was built like a little stage area. And I was having challenges connecting with people who would say if that was possible or not. So I emailed the community council president, this atheist. She connects us with the park and says, these guys can meet here. <laughs> so we worship together as a church in the park for seven months. Didn't pay a dime to be there. It's supposed to cost $500 a week to use this pavilion. And we preached the gospel is echoing off the car wash in the Wendy's right there. We heard people say that they could hear us from like the apartment complex across the main road, you know. People are, you know, there's people swinging on the swings. There's prostitutes hearing the gospel. I mean, this whole, whole thing. The woman of peace, Alyssa Pogue, the atheist, is the one who gave us that opportunity. And so praying for men and women, I, I, wake up, my abiding time with Jesus is at 5.15 every morning. And I'd been praying for men and women of peace in our neighborhood. And it was just an, an example of that. And there's other residents' stories uh, as well. Um, those affected. Let's see what time it is. 
Okay. Um, I'm going to try, try to switch cards. So um, we, we really undervalue people. But God doesn't undervalue people. And we see people, we make really quick judgments. Um, uh, but that's, that's not what God does. I want to read um, Isaiah 61. always love this scripture. Uh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of ven vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planning of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now listen to Isaiah 61.4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities. Who, who's going to re renew the ruined cities? The mourning. Those who are in despair. The brokenhearted. The captive, right? The, the least of these who've uh, struggled and had challenge they're going to be the ones who are going to renew the cities long devastated. I can't tell you how many uh, speakers I've heard talk about we're going to take on the seven spheres of influence. And we're going to influence the government and Hollywood and education, right? And they'll do all these spheres and guess Who's never listed in there? The poor, the marginalized, the broken, those who are struggling. The word says they will renew the cities long devastated. What does that mean? It, it means we need to figure out how to get behind God's vision. Absolutely. How do, we, how do we come alongside and underneath and value people and, and work with them across their struggles and challenges and, and invest in them in a way where they renew the cities? Yes. Well, let me say this, and I'm not kidding around. This is multi-decade investment in the same family's life. multi-decade investment in a family's life. One of the couples sitting in our living room 
I've been there, right, when he got busted again for selling weed, and he had to get locked up. I got the honor of officiating the wedding ceremony, which which was to the mother of his three children, right, Terry's children, Terry and Otiez, um, here we're having this family w- wedding, and neither side of the family knows when the last time that someone actually officially got married in their family line, right? And I've, I've got story after story. Um, that connection with the Thomas family started in 2006, right? And I'm telling you, there's a lot of years ahead. <laughs> Tyshawn, uh, who's 18 and at college right now, it was at the park, uh, uh, one Sunday where I was preaching and he gave his life to Jesus. He got baptized right there in a jacuzzi, right? He's driving back from college on the weekends and he's still hanging out listening uh, to the messages on Sunday morning and, and, and beginning to be discipled. I mean, this is the kind of like, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I, you know, Terry and Tiz are raising their nephews. Their mom lives with them. You know, they've got cousins who's coming out of the, I mean, it's just, right? This is a big storyline. That's the kind of investment it takes um, because Terry and Tiz are leaders. They're gathering people. They're influencing their community. They're taking care of their family. Um, uh, Tiz just started as our administrative assistant uh, at church. I connected her with another job opportunity where she's going to get paid even more money. Uh, she's still able to stay with us as a church, praise the Lord, right? But I'll tell you, there's this moment where I saw a need and I saw an opportunity and I, and I, I didn't want to pass that along because I don't want to lose her. But that's not an investment in their family, right? <laughs> and so there's these constant moments. Um, but I'm, I'm serious about this. I mean, this is one of those things where I, I'm kind of just deeply feeling like, Lord, what's my role in this? How, do, how, how? Let, me, let me put it this way. Uh, the smartest minds right now are figuring out things like, how do we put a rocket on Mars or have a self-driving car or whatever? Let's put our smartest minds right here, God. <laughs> Let's camp out on Isaiah 61.4 and uh, be a part of God's vision in that way. And then uh, I'll end with this and then leave room and space to just have a dialogue. Best practices. Um, so, you know, there's so so many neat things happening uh, in cities, ministries, and help that, you know, people have figured out over decades how to pioneer and they work well. And it's so important that we, we know that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We need to work with others. Um, and, and so there's there's things like, uh, I'll give an example. We have the Beacon of Hope Alliance in Cincinnati, which is a group of businesses committed to h- hiring people who have a criminal record. That took them a lot of effort <coughs> getting that going. Ohio Justice and Policy Center help work with people to see if they can expunge parts of their criminal record, depending on what it has. So those are examples of best practices. Jobs are in need, it's hard to get a job. If you've got a criminal record, we can invite those organizations into our neighborhood, right, to bring opportunities. Um, Care Portal is a is a great tool 
uh, to connect a need in a home um, with the local church. And so a social worker who's making a visit to a home can recognize a need. Hey, this, this, this baby really needs a crib. This child really needs a bed. So that social worker puts that need out to churches and people in a church can meet that need and take that better crib to someone so that that child can stay with their biological family. Because the system is not a good thing, right? For people who are living below the poverty line, as much as there's a need for Christ followers to step up and to foster and adopt, there's kind of a whole other dynamic and story there. And so we wanna kind of be all in, even though that's all messy, right? In all the different ways. So just finding out what best practices exist in your city or where you're doing ministry and how you can be involved. All right, so let's talk. Questions, thoughts, things that God is stirring in your heart today. Yeah, I think that what was really resonate, resonating for me was with, you know, with the Holy Spirit, with others, with blessing, because so historically there's two dynamics. One, church planners back in the day, like when people would go to plant a church, especially 70s and 80s, it was kind of the people who didn't fit in anywhere. Like, why don't you go plant a church? You don't, and so they did it totally alone. Then you, you want to get into like going to do urban ministry. That was like you really didn't fit in, right? That was the like, you know, and of course I'm talking about the white church, right? So, so the, the idea of doing ministry in the urban core was a very much an alone type of thing. And I think the game changer here is I, I honestly believe and it's kind of what we're experimenting, experimenting with at People's Church East, I do believe that there's people from the suburbs who will fully join a church plant in a challenging urban uh, neighborhood, and it's not a missions project, it's where they're gonna do the kingdom. And I think it's really important not to just be looking for outside funding from other organizations to make urban ministry happen. I think there's the financial means in the body of Christ for there really to be a diversely united expression of the gospel. It's not easy. Um, it's really easy for me to say those words, but then if you've been doing ministry for a long time trying to find funding, you're like, what? Um, but I think God's just doing something new because as much as we could talk a lot about this, someone's going to live in this house and they might be a Christ follower. And, and God might use that, right? And, and, and or maybe they kind of drive from somewhere else. And so, so it's it just.
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, sustainable. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is, you know, it's just, again, authenticity is everything, relationships, everything. So kind of the level of like, you know, who's at your Thanksgiving dinner table? Who's just your biological family? Or is it your church family who you're doing ministry with, people who don't have anywhere else? To, you know, that kind of thing is just so important. Other thoughts? And the blessing takes on different forms, too. Um, so in Cincinnati, we've got uh, Mosaic Cincy, which is churches committed to a multi-ethnic future. And we have um, really authentic dialogue. So, like, you know, when there was a knee taken um, during the national anthem at sporting events, like, we're talking about that as a group of pastors and ministry leaders in a really authentic way. And it was really, it's really great to get different perspectives on something like that but I'll give an example so at Tridestone New Beginning brother Jerry Colbreth has been pastoring there pastoring there for decades and it's a large church right African-American church well he's been a part of this movement right walking together in unity with pastors for decades and he's very honest about how tired he is you know and 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 um and he's even had some jaded moments in the journey because as a, as a pastor of color, he's, he's been unsuccessful of having white people follow his leadership. And he's a dynamic teacher, incredible man. But he stayed at the table and, and you know, as he's passing the baton now to his son, um, he can see possibilities for the next generation. 
And so his blessing just came even in his tears and sacrifice and struggle and heartache and pain. He's been this really, uh, you know, continual voice, you know, of authenticity. And, he's, and he just blesses, he teaches, he, he pours out his heart. And so there's just a lot of different expressions here. It could look like it's incredible partnership, you know, where you're doing ministry together and co-leading, but it, it, it also oh, looks different. There's not always resolution, and that's part of, you know, there, um, yeah, and that was hard for me. I'm a peacemaker. There's probably about 10 years where I felt really heavy, and I've, I'm, I've been better now about it's okay when someone's just angry and just, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, like, I could, I mean, people get up and leave like upset, right? Um, One just really genuine moment. Um, So a a man of color, pastor of color, Sherman Bradley, and I co-led Cincinnati Mosaic, okay? And we've been doing that for years. And uh, so Sherman and I and O'Neill Okwabi, who's a woman of color, you know, who's written a couple books, you know, we're leading a group and we're, we're talking about being a diversity united church and there's an older gentleman in his 80s in the back who was part of a, the congregation that we were sharing our presentation and uh he just started just weeping just weeping and you know his his heart was weeping for the the neighborhood where he grew up in as a kid where there was a thriving economy and then when it came time to put the highway in, just went right through that black community and destroyed and displaced. And there, were, there was never anyone to apologize for that. You know, there, it was like it didn't happen. So what, you, you just go decades pretending like that didn't even happen. And then, so finally today, yeah, there's some books or whatever on the subject, for, but for him, he, he he wanted to see the vision, right, of, you know, reconciliation and hope and a city being renewed. But it's just that pain is still there. And so even I, th- I think starting to have those genuine dialogues just allows an environment where there can be some healing. Um, yeah. 
it's my so my my dad uh, was in social work and um, for a long time and so he would go and visit the clients you know and um, he did a couple different roles he was a parole officer he was a counselor he helped people who struggled with the mentally mental illness and had a criminal record and had an addiction try to find a job so imagine that kind of thing anyway we'll, we'll be walking downtown cincinnati and uh he'll have these memories of meeting clients and their families in their homes well that same real estate now like there might be a condo there that costs a million dollars and so it's just it's so hard to even figure out what to do with that in your mind you know like um because now we have churches that come in to a city area and they they know nothing about the pain of a neighborhood they've sacrificed nothing and then they're starting this kind of new hipster expression and it's really incomplete and so that's yeah again just like this with blessing and with questions like that might seem simple for me to say that but that's just a really big deal i mean it's a really big deal you know um, Yeah, I mean, th I think that it, it it's just a multi-year journey even to prepare properly for that. Um, they need to they need to be with and under people who are doing that in ministry. Um, I think is really important. I, I think there's a lot of books that they need to read. There's a lot of questions they need to ask themselves. Are you really wanting to? You know, are you, do you really know what you're committing to? But also just finding people to support. That's one of the fun things um, that I'm grateful about people's church network is that we we have people to connect with and be a family and talk about how hard it is. <laughs> You're not just doing it on your own. Thank you. 
being incarnational in the neighborhood.
Absolutely. That's good. Yep. Amen. 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 Um, I'm, I'll tell one final story and then we'll pray together. Uh, so, um, we're at the park and we're, uh, you know, worshiping there every week. And it was, it was just wild. Like the cicada, 17 year cicadas were there. One, we have one shade tree and like, there's a giant, I mean, there's a hornet nest like this big that's sitting out on Sundays. But anyway, uh, this guy named Donnie, who's borderline homeless is down in the woods and he gets a joint out of his pocket and he gets ready to light it up and he hears this music he goes what's that so he puts the joint back in his pocket and he goes walking up out of the woods and there's a church there you know and he sits down in a seat and he and he recommits his life to christ right and so then he starts coming every sunday he starts helping us set up beforehand he's eating the donuts connecting with people and what he would do for money is there's a dairy mart close by and the guy would let him if he slept up a little bit he'd give him five dollars of cash and that's how donnie would eat every day right and so he's coming to church and always after my messages he's asking me d- these really deep questions well why did god allow this happen pastor and um so one of the frustrations that he had over time was why does why do my friends who are doing what's wrong selling drugs have money in their pocket and i have nothing what do you say to me? They're like, Pastor, I'm trying to do a trade. What's going on? You know, kind of this whole thing. Well, um, he just, but he kept trusting God and kept journeying in that process. And one of the just real heartache things for him was that he had a severed relationship with his mother. He hadn't talked to her in three years. And so she was going to be in town, and he invited her to church. And he was so nervous. I remember that Sunday morning. He's like, I think she's going to come. I hope she comes. You know, he's like checking the parking lot. You just look across the field or whatever. Worship starts. She's not there. He had saved a seat for her. And then I, I look back, and here she comes. She's wheeling in her wheelchair, you know. And they got to sit together under that shade tree and experience church. And she looked at him and said, Donnie, I'm pow- proud of you. I love you. And they reconciled their relationship, right? It was just a real gift in that journey. Well, keep fast forward over time, and, of course, one night after men's group, the house, the apartment where he was couch surfing, those people got evicted, and then he was squatting in there. And then the apartment manager found out about it, locked the door behind him, you know, changed the lock. His ID's in there. He has no ID. He has no social security card. So then here's this person who's homeless who has no ID. If you've ever tried to help someone get an ID during COVID, it's impossible, by the way. Like, just doesn't understand how to use the internet. I'm the one using it. I mean, just there's a whole story with that, right? It took us several months to whittle away at that. So can't get a job. He doesn't have money, this whole thing. And he just was getting lower in his spirit. And uh, I, he said, Pastor, give me a scripture. Pastor, give me a scripture. I need a scripture to hold on. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He's like, okay, I got it. You know, so he goes away. Well, he gets contacted by this aunt in North Carolina who's older, like in her 70s. And she says, Donnie, I'm coming to pick you up. The next day she drives up from North Carolina and picks him up out of a homeless shelter. Okay. So I talked to him on the 
been talking to him on the phone now, right? Because he lives in North Carolina. And every time I talk to him on the phone, I've got, I've got a family. I've got a bed. He's got a job at the airport. He makes $16 an hour. He's giving people money who are on the street. He's praying with people. You know, he's telling people about Jesus. He called me a couple weeks ago. He said, my mother died. I said, Donnie, I'm so sorry. But, but then he says, but Pastor Tom, we reconciled the relationship right there at the park. That was the last time I saw my mom. And so it's just like, just because we were out, right, doing church in the park, it totally changed Donnie's life. It's a total miracle. And, and that, that journey, you know, honestly, w- walking with people, he's probably going to have another valley, right, and, th- and then another moment. But, boy, to be a part of, you know, where God's at work is so fun. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Um, Jesus, this really feels like a holy moment. Uh, You're doing deep things by your spirit to lead us to the men, women, and children that you care about so much, people who are forgotten and overlooked, who are marginalized and oppressed. Jesus, we want to be about your work and your ministry, so I just pray that you bless every person here. pray that you'd encourage us and uh, lead us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.